where we can gather and give you the worship that is due you. So I pray this morning, God, you know exactly where each of us are. You know exactly what each of us need. You know exactly what we all need to hear. So I ask that you do give us ears to hear and eyes to see that may we, that we may come away changed, transformed, not like how we were when we walked in for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to extend another good morning to those of you here who are visiting for the first time. Welcome to the Cornerstone Bible Church. Our desire is simple. We want to exalt and proclaim Christ. We want to make much of Him because He's worthy. He's worthy of all honor and all praise, and we're glad that you're here. So a few weeks ago, we started a series that we've titled Joy in Christ. And I pray that for the many of you that have been here for the last couple of weeks, it's stirred your hearts, it's stirred your souls to remember who Christ is and remember what He's done and let that dwell within you. That it stirs in your heart a greater affection and motivated you to live in obedience, ultimately, for His glory. And you're good. This is why you were created, to, to share in God the Father's delight in Jesus. He's a delight. He is delightful. So our goal is to orient your minds towards Jesus. To look to Him. To prioritize Him. We are created for His glory, Isaiah 43 says. And God the Father glories in the Son. This Son, this Jesus, in whom He is well pleased. Furthermore, God says, listen to Him. Later in the epistles in the New Testament, we are commanded, look to Him. Fix your eyes on Him to behold His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace in truth. So this Jesus, who God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke of in chapter 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. This is our reality. Delighting in Christ, and in other words, being pleased with Him, being satisfied in Him, not wanting anything else. This delight manifests in happiness, and this delight manifests in obedience, this delight manifest in intimacy. It manifests in contentment. This delight manifests in what our series has been aimed at. Joy. Unfortunately, joy is often viewed similarly to happiness, like they are synonymous with one another, but they're not the same. Because happiness is conditional. Happiness is conditional in Circumstance, that's where we get happenstance. When everything is good, I'm happy. When my team wins, I'm happy. When my investments pay out, I'm happy. When no one is mad at me and there's no drama going on, I'm happy. When there's money in the bank and I feel healthy, I'm happy. Now, just to be clear, all these things, being happy, not wrong, not sin, and yes, by all means, be happy. 
But happiness is not joy. The difference is this. Joy happens and is present when all those other things I just listed out and more don't happen. Joy is not withstanding circumstance. Joy is not dependent on any particular favorable event event happening. True joy is present whether or not the situation is favorable. True biblical joy is a peace. It's a settled contentment in one's heart, in one's soul, that no matter the circumstance, there's a calm, there's a, there's a trust, there's a reliance, and there's a faith that the Lord gives or the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Joy allows for the Christian to say, it is well with my soul. This joy, dear church, cannot be bought. This joy cannot be produced. This, this joy cannot be procured. This joy cannot be manufactured like happiness can. This joy can only be found in Christ. And so we began this series being encouraged to have joy in the incarnate Christ. Last week we were encouraged to have joy in the eternal Christ. And this morning we'll be encouraged to have joy in the sovereign Christ. Joy in the sovereign Christ. And my purpose this morning is simply this, that we would pursue our joy in the sovereign Christ and nothing else. That we would pursue our joy in the sovereign Christ and nothing else. That the sovereignty of Christ is the pillow, as it were, where we can rest our heads, where we can rest our souls, though we will Consider many texts this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 will serve as our main text, so please turn there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. We will have just one point this morning. One point. And it is this, that Christ is the sovereign creator of all. Christ is the sovereign creator of all. So read with me. Colossians chapter 1. We'll read starting in 15 so you can get the context of this great passage. Starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place. In everything. What a text. Before we dive in, some context, I think, will be helpful. We are in the book of Colossians. Paul here is writing to the believers. Christians in Colossae. How do we know that? Verse 4 in chapter 1 says there, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ. So these are believers. He's writing to them. 
not only to encourage them, but to warn them. Warn them against false teaching. Warn them against things that undermine Christ. Warn them against things that question that Christ is God. Teaching that said that Christ is but a emanating spirit from God, along with all the other emanating spirits. There was what's called a philosophical dualism. Meaning that flesh and spirit are separate because flesh is dirty and sinful and spirit is pure. And therefore, Christ could not have been man. Which is why it was concluded that he was simply an emanating spirit from God. Gnosticism was also prominent, that you needed some form of higher knowledge to attain true spirituality. Tradition and works were elevated as a way to salvation. Chapter 2, verse 4 in Colossians, there were persuasive arguments that were leading people astray. Later in chapter 2 of Colossians, there were philosophies and empty deception and Traditions of men that were taking people captive. One of the teachings taking people captive was the teaching of worshiping creation above Christ, specifically worshiping angels. You know, this might sound familiar to you in our present day, or at least it should, because it's also what's going on right now. Persuasive arguments regarding social justice and wokeness and arguments against the sufficiency of the Bible as God's word, the role of men and women, transgenderism, a continual attack, an assault on the deity of Christ. Though this book, Colossians, was written 2,000 plus years ago, it's very relevant to today. Just last year, Lifeway in their survey of the state of theology in America, surveyed those who would call themselves Christian, in other words, evangelical, and 55% of those surveyed responded that Christ was created, and 53% of them responded that Christ was a great teacher But he was not God. Oh, God's word is as relevant today as it was then. And that's because it's alive. It's God breathed. And the Apostle Paul here is admonishing us. You know how to fight against all this. To not be discouraged and to have joy. This is how you do it. Remember who Christ is. And in our text this morning, just one verse. Chapter 1, verse 16. We will find... That Christ is sovereign. We don't often use the word sovereign in our daily language, at least not here in America. Textbook definition for the word sovereign is a supreme ruler possessing ultimate power. You know, it's not a bad definition. But I'd much rather prefer how the scriptures define sovereignty. And it defines it this way, that it's a ruler, a king, a lord. And scripture often refers to God as the one who rules over all. And his most common proper name, Yahweh, is regularly translated Lord in the Bibles that you have in your hands. And Lord is found 7,000, over 7,000 times as the name of God and specifically as the name of Jesus. And so to discuss the sovereignty of God is to discuss the lordship of God and 
Therefore, to discuss the lordship of God is to discuss the lordship and sovereignty of Christ. In our one point for this morning, we will see Christ's sovereignty in creation. Christ is the creator of all. The beginning of verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created. Let's stop there. For by him, we know that to be referring to Jesus. But how do we know that? Let's go back a few verses, starting in verse 13. It says, Therefore he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This beloved Son who has forgiven us, who is the image where we get the word icon of the invisible God. God is spirit and you can't see him. But God the Father in his kindness, through the Son, now you can see him. Christ makes visible what was once invisible. And you see why we make such a big deal about this. Why we need to look to Him. Because He's God. He's the firstborn of all creation. And that refers to status and authority. Not chronology. Christ is the Creator. He wasn't created. Christ created everything that is not God. False, heretical teachings like to twist this verse and say, see, see, Christ was created. Just a great man with great teaching. That's not what it says. While firstborn can be used in a physical sense, like literally the one born first, here it is used in a figurative sense. And Psalm 89, verse 27, helps us understand this. I'll read it for you. I will make him... The firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And this verse in Psalm 89 appears in a section of the psalm speaking of God's covenant with David. And it is perfectly clear from biblical accounts of David that he was not physically the firstborn of his family. As a matter of fact, he was the youngest. Firstborn is a position of authority, of rule, of sovereignty. And see also that word of firstborn of all creation, this prepositional word, of. I just wrapped up my first season coaching a boys' high school volleyball team, and I'm often referred to as the coach of that team. He is the coach of the team, and as the coach of the team, I'm certainly a part of the team, but I'm certainly not one of the players. Teachers here in this room, you are a teacher of that PE class. You are a teacher of that second grade class. You are certainly a part of the class, but you aren't one of the students. Oh, while Christ is in the midst of his creation as creator, he transcends it with all authority. So back to our text, if it wasn't enough for us, that Paul, in an absolute sense, says all things were created by him. All things in the Greek means just that. All things. The whole 
every, any, each, collectively everything, we may be skeptical to think, really? Like everything? Because that's how we talk. We talk in absolutes, but we don't really mean like all the time or in all ways or in all things or all, you know, every single day. You know, I just came back from chaperoning a three-day camping trip with a bunch of sixth graders. And in my cabin, I asked a few boys, do you shower every day? Yes, Mr. Tobias, all the time. Now, of course, the question was rhetorical. Okay? Because from what I'm smelling, I know that wasn't true. So Paul knows we may be skeptical to believe that Christ created everything. And remember the context. Christ was being minimized. He is not God. So Paul goes right to it. Be reminded, dear Christian, he's sovereign. So much so that he created everything. And you may ask, well, what is included in everything? Paul goes on in verse 16. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. I mean, that about covers it, right? Heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And we have... Now this high-powered telescope, the Webb telescope, as big as a semi-truck, that can see farther than we've ever seen before. And as we see these far galaxies and planets and solar, so solar systems, the new stars, there is no acknowledgement of God at all. There's no awe of who could have possibly created all this. Actually, quite the opposite. Credit is given to those who discovered it. Not the one who created it. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, says this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Oh, he knows them by name. And it's only by his kindness that he allows for us to see some of them. It's only by his common grace that he allows for individuals to take part in putting together telescopes strong enough to see this. Paul's language here in Colossians 1 is all-encompassing, much like how we say from A to Z, what that does is it assumes everything else in between is included. Everything. Everything we see in the sky, the, the stars, all the, the gorgeous sunsets, the awesome storm clouds, the, the wonders of the world, the oceans, man, the forests, the lands, the bridges, the skyscrapers, all of our technology, all of our food, all the things even I personally like, like sports and pour-over coffee and boba drinks. And yes, even those cringy, nauseating K-dramas that my wife watches. All created by Him. Psalm 104, verse 24 and 25. 
O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. John chapter 1, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Only God can talk in absolutes. Only God can talk this way. Even that ugly water bug, that ugly cockroach that gets stuck on my sticky mouse pads in my garage, all of that was created by him. You know, many years ago now, 2006, a documentary series called Planet Earth came out. Planet Earth, and it was in high definition. Remember when high definition was like brand new? We are wowed by this. HD. It blew me away. There are ocean creatures never before seen, never even knew existed until these cameras plumbed the depths of the ocean. We think even planet Earth itself, as compared to Beetlejuice, the star, not the weird dude, the star Beetlejuice, is but a size of a pearl in the middle of Levi's Stadium, and the rest of the stadium is that star. It's incomprehensible. The vastness, the glory, and the majesty, and the sovereignty of Christ, and the fact that there are things that are invisible, things we don't even know about, things only for Him, should make you shudder. Maybe this is what Paul was considering. The end of Romans chapter 11, when Paul at the end of his discourse said, Oh, the depths of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. You know, some of you here like art. You like going to art galleries, appreciate a good painting, popular pop-up art shows like the Van Gogh experience. Let's say you walk into a gallery and you see a beautiful piece, beautiful work of art. You know, you walk up to it, you're admiring it, you see the name of the person that did it, and you don't know the person. But you appreciate what you're seeing, but you don't know the person. Let's say, however, that you see a beautiful piece of art. And as you walk up to it, the name of the artist that you see is someone you know. It's your closest friend. It's your best friend. It's different, doesn't it? The artwork comes to life. The more you know who created it the more you know the artist. And when you love the person that created, the art has greater value, doesn't it? 
Romans 1 tells us that since creation, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature has clearly been seen. But sinful man wants no part of God. Sinful man willingly chooses to not acknowledge him. And that's some of you here this morning. You may know Christ on an intellectual level, but you have no knowledge of Him. The knowledge that speaks of experiential knowledge, that your heart has been transformed, that you see your sin now and you see His glory for the very first time. He's majestic and you see your helplessness and you are so helpless that you cry out to Him like the tax collector did. In Luke chapter 18, have mercy on me. A sinner, have mercy on me. You can do that this morning. And Christ will no longer be some religious figure. No, he will be your delight. He will be worthy of your pursuit. Knowing him will surpass anything this world has to offer. And the knowledge of him will render, as Paul says, everything you have accomplished Everything you have pursued outside of, of outside of Him as excrement, as dung, as compared to the knowledge of Him because He's greater than all. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. Starting in verse 5. says there, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. God is even sovereign. He's even ruling. He's even in control. Even in those things, even in those events that we would call tragic. In all our struggles, in all our conflicts, you may ask, How can that be? You see, this isn't easy. This is why many wrestle with the sovereignty of God and start compartmentalizing Him. That God is sovereign over all the good stuff, but when all the supposed bad stuff come, God, no way, no way you are going to be a part of that. Oh, dear Christian, this is where the fight for joy is realized And it is realized foremost in knowing who He is and knowing who we are. Just listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. This is why we exist. For Him. To trust Him. Explicitly stated, back to our text, Colossians chapter 1, 
Verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything is because of Christ. He is the goal. All things find their reason. All things find their purpose in him. Where it says for him there in the text, it gives direction. And that ought to be a comfort for us. That nothing happens outside of the rule of God. All things happen, all have a purpose in Christ. And you may not know what that is, but that doesn't mean there isn't a purpose. That doesn't mean that there is something happening, even though you are completely unaware of it. The comfort is that nothing happens in vain. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by a coin flip. In Christ, there is no plan B. There is no reconsideration and there's no rerouting. The timing of everything is perfect. The result of everything is as he has planned. The goal of everything, the intention of everything will happen. His glory and our good. You know, but our nature is such that we want our own way, don't we? Think back to Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. What was happening there? You know, when you think about it, Eve wasn't necessarily enamored by the fruit. She wasn't necessarily drawn to the tree. No, in that moment, God wasn't enough. He wasn't enough. And that same temptation, that same struggle has remained Ever since, generally speaking, we tend to struggle with authority. We tend to struggle with being in control. We get more anxious when we feel like we're losing control because when we are in control, we could affect the result, or at least we think we can, affect the result, the outcome, more favorable to us, maybe even to our advantage. We want to be, want to be independent of God because in those moments of struggle and doubt, we're not sure if God is actually in control. We're not sure if God knows what I'm truly going through. We're not really sure if God has my best interest in mind. Oh, we're not sure if God is who He says He is. Should it even really be a surprise that mental disorders have been on a constant rise year over year? Anxiety disorder, Social anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, anger, depression, and much, much more that when life gets difficult, and I understand that for many here, even this morning, oh, you're going through it. You're going through hardship. The emotions that manifest are are often the dashboard signal, like like the one in your car, the, the indicator, the light of what's going on in here. The sovereignty of Christ, the lordship of Christ, this is objective truth. And while our emotions and our minds can feel like a, like a roller coaster, may it comfort you, dear Christian, that Christ doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is the wonderful counselor. Christ is the prince of peace. And let that peace of the sovereign Christ rule in your hearts. See, that's why for the unbeliever, there is no peace. 
There's only worry. There's only uncertainty. Because this world doesn't believe in absolute truth. You know, we've moved on from maybe what we would say is a postmodern culture where truth is relative and truth is whatever you think it is because it's just relative to you. So who am I to tell you what you believe is true? Now we're in a what's considered a post-truth culture where truth actually no longer exists. It's not even just it's relative. It just it doesn't actually exist anymore. You know, I chaperoned again. I've been doing a lot of chaperoning lately. <laughs> so maybe this is why it's been on my mind. It's just the things that I see or the Lord allows me to see. I took my daughter with her class on a field trip to the state capitol. And while I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked, but I was, in taking her, in taking her potty, they had bathrooms clearly marked, all gender, with no doors. Gender no longer exists. Two plus two, according to the Ontario Mathematics Coordinators Association, is not necessarily four. And if you say it's four, then you're a racist. You're a white supremacist. It's crazy. This is madness. It's also very sad. What life without Christ looks like. A life without hope. A a life without direction. A life without sense. A life without purpose. A, A life without peace. A life without rest. A life without joy. But oh, He is the way. Christ is the truth. Christ is the life. He says, come to me all. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything exists for him. You exist for him. He is the goal. He is the reason. We have life to live for real. But you aren't living life for real if you aren't living for him. Christ is our life. He's all hope. He's all wisdom. He's all knowledge. He's all growth. In Him is perfection. All the fullness of God dwells in Him, in Christ. It's Him alone. And what's interesting in verse 16 is as Paul is describing God's creation through Christ, he uses these sweeping statements, right? Both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. And you know, he could have just stopped right there and it would have been just fine. But Paul does something interesting. He takes a little turn and specifies an aspect of Christ's creation and actually calls it out. Of all the things that he could have singled out, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul specifies within Christ's creation, says there, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. Now, why would he do that? 
Why would he call out that? Of all the things that he could have specified, he specified that. So why? So here Paul is referring to different ranks of angels. As I mentioned in the beginning, the believers in Colossae were being led astray to start worshiping angels above Christ. As if angels were mediators between them and God to start worshiping things that have been created, not the creator. And so Paul reminds them there's only one mediator, and that's Christ. Regardless of the rank, structure of angels, he is over them all. He created them. Paul, I think, also is referring to spiritual warfare. He said visible and invisible in a very real sense. Even our enemy The devil who was an angel along with the fallen angels who war against us. Christ is over them. Over them. Because in Christ you have been made complete. In verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul reminds us he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 15 of chapter 2, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. And oh, we can expand on this, can't we? We can expand on this. Powerful governments who think they are ruling or who think they are sovereign, who think they are in control, and we actually experienced some of that in the last couple of years, haven't we? Where the government flex their muscles and remember, dear church, God is the one who removes kings. He's the one who establishes kings. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6 says, You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says, God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say his hand and say to him, what have you done? These angels, call them fallen angels, they have to ask for permission. Satan couldn't just operate on his own. The book of Job shows us that. That God grants permission. You know, Matthew chapter 8 is another example where Jesus cast out demons. Oh, they knew who he was. What business, they said, right? What business do we have with each other, son of God? They knew who he was. Demons asked him, if you are going to cast us out, Send us into the herd of swine. And so Christ, who is sovereign over all, says, go. He is over all. He is in control. Christ is seated at God's right hand. That's a position of power and authority. And Ephesians 1, verse 21 says, he is far above. He's not just a little bit above. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And if that wasn't enough, Paul further goes and he put all things in subjection under his feet. So back to the question of why Paul specifically called this out in the midst of his Sweeping summaries of all of what Christ has created, I think a few reasons. One, if Christ is over the things that can hurt you, 
If Christ is over your spiritual enemies, if Christ is over all worldly powers, then Christ will certainly be over whatever it is that you're going through right now. Christ will be over that cancer diagnosis. Christ will be over that loss of job. Christ will be over that loneliness that you are feeling. Christ will be over that wayward child. Christ will be over that spouse who you can't seem to get on the same page. Christ will be over when you are at your wit's end and you don't know what else to do. Christ will be over your fear, your anxiety, your depression. Christ is sovereign and for those who trust in Christ, you see why you can be confident. You see why you can have joy And you see why now you can read James chapter 1 and rather than smirk at it when he says consider it all joy when you encounter various trials James isn't saying just be happy and fake it till you make it and and just smile or anything like that. No. In your times and in your sadness that settled contentment that peace in your hearts that come from Christ manifest in a joy that this world cannot understand because he's on the throne. He's in control. As R.C. Sproul famously said, there are no maverick molecules. There are no maverick molecules. And Christ isn't some ivory tower theologian that is removed and doesn't understand. He's the, he's the great high priest. He pitched his tent among men that you can go to him confidently because he lived the life you could not live. And he died the death that we all deserved to die. He was at all points tempted, yet without sin. And he knows what you're going through. Christ himself, in his most difficult circumstance, one that we could never fathom, as Christ faced the cross, where he willingly sacrificed himself for those who would believe in him, Hebrews tells us that he endured. That pending death, he endured that that rugged cross. How? Because for the joy that was set before him. Christian, if there was joy for Christ as he endured the cross... Surely there will be joy for you in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Romans eight twenty-eight. You know, we know this verse well, don't we? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, as you walk with Christ, as you carry your cross, as you pursue Him, and the things of this life start grinding on you. They are but an alarm, dear saints. They are but an alarm that is meant to draw your attention to what is most important. Knowing, trusting, loving, worshiping the one and only Savior, Jesus. He is our only hope. He is our lasting treasure. And again, in the mind of Paul, he already knows where you're going to go. 
Remember, Paul, by trade, he's, he's a lawyer. He can do mental gymnastics all day long, sharp, so he knows where you're going. He knows that it may seem like you are falling apart, you're bursting at the seams, which is why he reminds you, Christ is the one who holds all things together. All things together. And this is often what suffering does for us. It draws us to Him. Desperation draws us to Him. The woman with the 12 years of bleeding. Jesus, can you help me? Jairus, my daughter has just died. Jesus, help me. Peter, where else would I go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And it's in our weakness. It's when that thorn in your flesh, whatever that thorn is in your flesh, and you've begged God, you've begged Him, take it away, like Paul did. Take this thorn away. And if Christ so chooses in His sovereignty to not remove that thorn, then, even then, the reaction should not be, why not? Why won't you remove it? No, because His grace will be sufficient. In our weakness, His power is perfected. And Christ isn't like the proverbial watchmaker who winds up the clock and just lets it go. No, He is actively involved, actively holding all things together, and actively ruling, and actively in authority, and actively interceding for us when we don't even know what to say. You know, for those who trust in Jesus, you can be confident that God is always on His throne. He's always accomplishing His perfect purposes because He's sovereign. So therefore, His people need not be anxious, need not be fearful. Psalm 62, verse 6 says, He is... He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. And so as we close our time this morning... Ask yourself, do you have this joy? And if the answer is no, it could be that you don't know who Jesus is. You have yet to come to a saving knowledge of him. So I beg of you, come to Christ and he can make all things new. You can come right now, freely. He's paid the cost. He's paid the price with his own life. Oh, confess with your mouth that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and He will save you because in His presence is fullness of joy. To the believer, may Christ's sovereignty give you confidence. May it strengthen your faith because Christ knows. Oh, Christian, delight in Him. And the only way you can delight in Him and have joy in Him is if you Know who He is. So desire, as Paul says in chapter 3 of Colossians, let His Word dwell in you richly. Desire, dear church, to count all things 
to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, for whom, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so I may gain Christ. You see, Christ is the prize. It's not the gifts that he gives. He's the prize. You get to have him. And he is eternally more than enough. And this is exactly what Paul wants back in Colossians 1. And as he finishes those set of verses, his conclusion of going through this discourse of Christ's sovereignty and creation and holding all things together is this. At the end of verse 18, that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The ESV translates that he might be preeminent. Is Christ first place in everything? You know, maybe we need to reevaluate. Maybe we need to reprioritize. And what will help you, dear church, is the very means of grace that he has given us. Reading his word, prayer, fellowship, being here, hearing the word of God preached, discipleship, yes, even suffering. Through these things, you will know him more. And the more you know him, the more you will be delighted. The more you will be satisfied and the more you are satisfied, the more you will have joy. So a closing verse. A truth. A reality that is yours, Christian. This is yours. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. O Sovereign Lord, Creator of all, may we be a people who submit to You, who pursues You, places You first in everything. May we be a people that find their delight in You. May we be a people that find their joy in You and in You alone. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name, amen.